This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. Hey guys, Jeremy here with Simple Little Life. Welcome to episode number 14 of the Simple Little Life podcast. I hope you're doing really well. Hopefully things are going well for you. Uh, things have been super busy. I wasn't able to get a podcast out last week. Um, even uh, videos for YouTube and stuff like that have been a little bit dismal for me lately. And that's just due to the fact that I've been really, really busy. Uh, exciting with the changing of the seasons and we're coming up to the really busy, busy part of the year. And uh, I'm excited about it. It's going really well. well what I have for you today is a podcast all about the tools that I use for making knives. I went out into my garage and I sat down with a pen and paper in my hand and I tried to list off everything that I use to make knives. I hope this is a complete list. I've got probably like 95% of everything. There may be the odd tool that I've missed. Uh, I might even have a couple of them come to my mind during the recording of this. And uh, with this podcast, we're just going to let it rip. I am not going to be editing this. So if there's any whoopsie-doos, please do bear with me. Uh, That's part of the whole thing is is if I want to do these podcasts, I think I need to make them as efficient as possible. So uh, the three categories that I have for these tools, the first category is going to be knife making specific tools. Uh, These are the tools that I've bought specifically for knife making. I probably didn't own them before I was into knife making. And really, I don't use them for anything other than knife making. The next category is general tools. So these are tools that you would use in knife making or woodworking or metalworking, something else, but uh, probably more readily available tools, things that they would typically sell at a Home Depot or some other machine store. And then the third category that we're going to use is consumables. And I think this one is probably one that varies a lot from one person to another. But I'm just going to kind of go over all the different consumables that I use in knife making and why I use them. And the whole goal with this episode is to maybe if you've been thinking about a certain tool and you're like, I don't know if I'd really use it. And maybe hearing the way that I use it and why I use it could help inform your decision a little bit more. And again, I use these tools probably differently than other people would. And so everything is personalized and it's kind of tailored to our own different styles and the way we like to work. But uh we're talking about tools, so it's it's always a good thing in my opinion. Okay, so the number one category, the first category, not the number one, the first category we're going to look at is knife making specific tools. And I think right off the bat probably comes the 2x72 bell grinder. Definitely a great tool if you're going to be making knives. I use my bell grinder for a lot of other stuff too. I use it for a lot of woodworking actually with the aluminum oxide abrasives, uh, sanding wood down. I probably do about in our busy season with my wife's business, I'll use my belt grinders eight to 10 hours a week on wood. So they're definitely not just for knife making. I get a lot of use out of them. And I would say my grinders probably run a good 15 hours a week at least. Uh, I have two grinders. One of them is the KMG, the original one, which I have heavily modified. I did a direct drive on it and uh, it's much better that way, much smoother uh, before I had the V-belt set up. And then with that, I also put on a VFD so I can change the speed. And I would say that that is probably the single biggest uh, thing about a belt grinder. If you can get one with a VFD so you can vary the speed, that is incredibly important. I know that there are certain abrasives uh, that cut better at different speeds. Like uh, I do believe that ceramics cut better at higher speeds than aluminum oxides would. And then also when you're getting into the finishing work, sometimes it is so nice just to be able to slow your grinder down 
take your time. You know, the material's not going to disappear as quickly. Uh, so that's one thing I would say about a 2x72 is the ability to have a VFD on it. In my opinion, I, I wouldn't want one without it. I have used one without it for about two years. And as soon as I put it on there, I was like, wow, I should have done this sooner. Uh, the next grinder that I have is the Black Fox, the Black Fox 1, and that is a great grinder. It flips horizontal and vertical. The KMG I have is strictly vertical. I, I did some modifications before, if you've seen it on my YouTube channel, so I could put it horizontal, but it was really clunky. It took up a lot of room. And that's one thing I really appreciate about the Black Fox 1 grinder is that it has a very small footprint. It kind of articulates within its own footprint, and the VFD is actually built into the base of the grinder. So a really nice, tidy package. Uh, just an incredible machine. The, the different features that it has and the adjustments that it has, uh, in my opinion, it's a far superior grinder to the KMG. Absolutely love that. So that tops the list. The number one, uh, obviously probably the most popular knife-making specific tool I have, is my 2x72. Now the next item I have is my disc grinder. And I guess this could be argued as not necessarily specific for knife making. I know a lot of woodworking uh, people have disc grinders. Uh, but the one that I have is kind of a little bit more just for knife making in that I don't have any type of a work rest on it. I use mine in the vertical fashion, so the disc is actually vertical straight up and down. And what I use that for is two main things. The first thing, uh, kind of flattening out bevels on large kitchen knives. It does a really good job, and you know when you come off the 2x72... You think you've got it really perfectly flat, and even if you're kind of angling your blade along the platen to kind of, you know, work with more than just the two inches, it's amazing how much it reveals um, when you jump to the disc grinder. And often I'll go into my disc grinder, I'll, I'll do a quick pass or two, and it'll kind of show you where the high spots are. Obviously, it'll start grinding the high spots first, and it just gives you a really good visual. And sometimes I'll actually go from my disc grinder, if I have a lot of work and it's actually quite a few high spots, I can concentrate on those spots on the on the 2x72, the belt grinder. And so that's what I use it for uh, on the knife stuff. And then also for flattening handle scales, it's amazing how flat you can get with a disc grinder. And I would point out that there are two main types of discs that you can get for knife making. If you buy them from knife making suppliers and stuff like that, uh, the one of them is a totally flat disc. And they also sell one that has a one degree crown on it. And I think the idea behind that is that you wouldn't ever have a situation where, you know, one side of your disc is obviously kind of rotating down and one is rotating up. And sometimes if you stick a really long blade on there, so you're crossing both sides of the disc, it, it does some weird things. It kind of obviously wants to rotate a little bit. And they do make one that has a one degree, uh, just the slightest little taper on there. So it's a one degree cone. And what that means is as soon as you hit the center part, you're going to be coming away from the disc. So you don't have that situation where you're going to, you know, you end up having like a, a disc wanting to spin on you. I I was thinking about that style, the one degree style, and honestly, I don't find it that bad. Once you get used to a perfectly flat disc, um, you just you kind of learn about it and work with it. And it, it does. There are certain times when you, if you got a fairly coarse grid on there, it can kind of grab and it acts a little bit weird. Uh, sometimes the knife will travel a little bit on you. Um, but it's just a matter of getting used to it. You know, after a couple of knives, it's like, okay, I know how this I know how this grinder is going to act. I know how it's going to be moving the material. So uh, that's something to keep in mind. Um, I'd, I'd be interested to try the one-degree disc uh, just to see if it actually is much different. But that's something to think about, something to look for if you are buying one. They do have the flat ones and the one-degree. 
And again, uh, to make my disc grinder, I actually put it together myself. So I just took a, a motor, a Baldor motor, and then I bought the disc. Uh, there's a lot of different places. I actually got mine from knifemaker.ca, the Canadian knife making supplies. Um, and I've just put it on a pedestal and uh, I have a VFD on it. So it's kind of a homebrew jobby, very simple, not a lot to it. And uh, really, really great tool. So the next tool that I have that is specific for knife making is a checkering file. And this actually, I guess, isn't necessarily a knife making tool. It's, it's for like doing uh, checkering on, on gun stocks and stuff like that. A lot of times, too, they will kind of use the checkering file just to kind of rough it in. And then they actually have different um, different like checkering cutters, like individual chisels almost that they'll really fine tune those, those patterns with. But I use a 0, zero which is a 20 tooth per inch, which I believe is the coarsest checkering file you can get. And uh, they work really great. And I use this primarily for thumb jimping on the knives. There's a few other knives that I've done where I'll put some decorative pieces, maybe on the butt stock or like the butt of the, the handle or something like that. But the checkering file just adds a really nice uniform, really clean uh, way to add thumb jimping to a knife. It, it just looks top notch, absolutely professional, much quicker than doing it with like a little diamond file, or a little triangular file one at a time. And uh, one little tip with that is that I use chalk on my files. Uh, if you ever want to prevent kind of a buildup or loading of your file teeth, often if you just take regular chalk, I just go by like chalkboard chalk, and load the file up with that first, it really helps prevent steel from getting stuck into the teeth and loading up that way. So uh, that will be one of the other tools that I use specific for knife making. Uh, sanding blocks, I have sanding blocks that I make and I sell. Actually, for this week, I guess in, in response to this podcast, they are on sale. Uh, $60, and that's free shipping in Canada and United States of America. Uh, outside of those locales, you can click on some options there. Um, but I use my sanding block all the time uh, if I have to hand sand. Now, truth be told, I hate hand sanding, and I try to avoid it at all costs. But there are, you know, if a client wants a hand sanded finish... Uh, that's what they get. I love personally the belt finish uh, on the bevels. And there's sometimes when you need to hand sand just the flat of the blade and you still have the belt finish. And so these little sanding blocks are really handy and they can come in any shape and size. I do have some sanding blocks that are leather covered. So they have a little bit more forgiveness there. They can kind of compensate a little bit. Um, but sanding blocks, definitely something that I, I think most people that make knives and do any amount of sanding, they, they come up with their own styles and preferences. Some guys have like really large handles on the sides of them. Um, I have really small ones that are just really tiny pieces of metal. So if I've got, say, like a 45 degree that I want to just clean up and run through the grit so I get a really nice finish, it's nice to have a really rigid backed piece rather than just, you know, kind of holding the, the sandpaper with your thumb. And uh, sanding blocks, definitely something that uh, you're going to want when you get into knife making and lots of them too. I probably have four or five different types of sanding blocks that I use on a regular basis. The next item I have on my list here is a heat treat oven. Um... I do stock removal, so I guess that's one thing I should caveat all this stuff. Uh, these are pretty much, well, this is entirely based on stock removal style of knife making. And one thing you're going to want to get once you get into it is a decent heat treat oven. I happen to have an even heat, which works great. I have the 110 volt. And doing it over again, I probably would go with a 220 volt. But at the time that I had bought my 110, uh, I didn't have 220 power available to me. This was when I was working my shipping container shop, and all I had was uh, 110. Uh, the one thing with it, it takes a long time to come up to temperature. Uh, if I need to do like stainless steel, so I'm going up to like 1950 degrees Fahrenheit, we're looking at like two, three hours. I ha actually haven't ever timed it, but it's it's about two hours to get up to temperature. So it takes a long time. Having said that, you can run it on a regular like uh, 15 amp circuit. It's uh, 
low power consumption, but then obviously the trade-off is that it, it takes a while. Uh, I've talked to some gentlemen that have the 220 version, and it heats up much quicker. Uh, but a heat treat oven is definitely something you're going to want to get, and it's it's an investment, right? Uh, I know a lot of people will heat treat in their forges, and I do know there are some fairly nice forges that people have put together. Uh, Bob Rankin has done an amazing job, and I think that would be the one area where you could possibly substitute a forge for a heat treat oven is if you've got like pyrometers and you can actually get a really tight control of your forge. Um, but ultimately, I think, you know, a digital electric kiln is such a great way to go. It's, it's going to be precise, and it is going to give you the most repeatable, most accurate method to heat treat your blades. And the proper heat treatment is one of the most important thing, if not the most important thing, when you're knife making. And again, there are a lot of different brands on the market. I have the, the Even Heat. Uh, I think doing it again, if I had known about Paragon, I probably would have looked at them a little bit. Uh, more I, I didn't I hadn't heard about them when I was looking for a heat treat oven, uh, but there's certain features about the Paragon kilns that I think I like a little bit better to the uh, even heat. Uh, but having said that, I can't complain about my even heat at all. That thing works hard and it's never given me issues before. And uh, so yeah, something to look at. Take a look around, see what you like. I also have heard of people uh, buying old pottery kilns and stuff like that. We actually picked up a pottery kiln for my wife, and I don't know the manufacturer, uh, but I know there are a lot of people that will actually modify those. In fact, Brian House uh, took one of those and basically made his own heat treat oven. Um, another gentleman I know, BMK Knife and Tool, he made his own heat treat oven, and so that's always an option too, and I don't think it's as difficult as people uh, imagine it to be. Uh, really, the framework of the kiln is, is nothing special. It's basically just sheet metal on the um, the even heat. And then coming up with the program and the, the coils and all that stuff, it's something you can certainly do as a DIY project and uh, something to look at. The next one I have on my list is a knife vise. And this was one that I had made. I have a video on how I made it on my YouTube video. And uh, I'll put a link to that in the show notes or the, the description on the simplelittlelife.ca uh, that's going to go along with this because there's a lot of information here and sometimes just talking about it you know, might want to dig a little deeper so I'll try and link up a lot of this information to that but I made a knife making vise works great and it allows me to clamp the blade in while I'm finishing off handles it articulates up and down about 45 degrees it rotates so any side of the handle I need to work on it is so much nicer to have that uh, just set up so you can spin the knife around in fact just this last week Jeff Fader uh, Fader Knives he made one with a pipe and some wood and uh, go check out his Instagram that is a really excellent way to go because it's so simple and it gets the job done right? I mean, if you don't want to invest time, I spent quite a bit of time making the one that I have. I did a lot of machining on it, a lot of welding, and it took a while. I'm really happy with it. And I've got like a really great, and honestly, I'd far rather use mine than what other people have made that I've seen. Uh, but it was quite a project too. So it doesn't have to be complicated. Uh, but I think anything, even as Jeff had done, like a couple of pieces of wood inside a pipe that you can clamp in your vise, just allows you to get to 360 of that handle when you're working on it. It's always going to be much better than just clamping it with soft jaws and a regular vise. The next tool I have is a sanding clamp. And um, this was essentially just a, a piece of, it's about a three foot by three foot, sorry, three inch by three inch piece of maple. And I put a toggle clamp on it. And so what I'll do is if I am hand sanding a blade, I can use that toggle clamp and clamp down the tang. That way I'm not like using vice grips or bar clamps or anything like that. Do my hand sanding, flip it over. Um, it appears in a lot of my videos. You've probably seen it before. And that is a tool that I use all the time. And it's so easy to make. Uh, 
toggle clamps, those things can, if you kind of think about toggle clamps, that's kind of a key to this little sanding clamp that I have. Uh, there's a lot of uses for them. And uh, definitely one of these tools that, you know, if I'm in a store and I see some toggle clamps, I usually pick up three or four of them because I'm going to end up using them eventually on some type of a jig or fixture or something like that. Next item on the list is a grinding jig. Now, the first one that I did was as simple as a piece of angle iron uh, on the side that you clamp the blade to. I just would use like a, a vice grip or sometimes a cant twist clamp. And then on the other leg, the other part of the L, I just drilled and tapped a single hole and I used a 3 8 bolt with a locking nut on there. And that way I can actually put an angle block, kind of jack that bolt up and down, adjust my angle. And then for some knives that I make a lot more of, particularly the smaller knives, when I'm doing large kitchen knives, I, I usually like to freehand grind them. But when I've got little tiny like the EDCs, uh, last ditch necker, stuff like that. I have some specific jigs that I've made and they're basically just a piece of bar, a uh, solid steel bar. I believe most of them are about like a three quarter inch by three quarter inch. And I'll actually mill in a specific angle. I've got one at five degrees and one at eight degrees and that corresponds with different knives that I make. Um, but grinding jigs are really awesome especially if say if I've got like five or ten of these knives to make uh, I can get them the exact same every single time and it just allows you to run through it really quickly boom boom typically I'll, I'll roughen my grinds then I'll heat treat and then after heat treat usually I clean them up without a jig but it's just nice to get that work done so I'm not spending time chasing grinds uh, very repeatable very consistent and uh, works really good so that is the grinding jigs definitely don't be ashamed to use grinding jigs I know there's a there's a whole stigma that people have. I think usually that stigma comes from people that don't do anything or don't know how to do anything. They just have these ideas in their heads and like to uh, voice their opinions. The next knife specific tool that I have is the aluminum plates in the wood vise for heat uh, for quenching stainless steels. Um, a lot of comments I get on my YouTube videos, people say, well, why didn't you heat treat it? And I guess you know, they always expect that heat treating has to be with oil and they like to see the fire when you come out. Um, that's not the case, obviously, for stainless steels. They've, they're in the foil pouch and you want to cool them off as quickly as possible. I have two one-inch steel plates and they're fastened to a woodworking vise. So the nice big fat, I think it's probably like maybe four inches by eight inch jaws clamp that thing in there and the aluminum just sucks the heat out of that steel so fast and then obviously you know you put it in there and you blow compressed air around it usually it's less than 60 seconds and you can have a knife that came out of a, a oven at like 2000 degrees fahrenheit and you can touch it it might be around 130 120 degrees still warm but it's incredible how efficient that is and that is a tool that i obviously uh, use all the time i would hate to be without that and uh, if i didn't have one of those and i was wanted to work with aluminum definitely one of the first things i would make because it's super super easy uh another another tool that i have listed here is a fixed angle knife sharpener now there are a lot of different ones available i actually just released a it's like a 42 minute video for my patreon page when i compare all the the fixed angle knife sharpeners that i have i talk about the pros and cons to each uh there's some things that i i can say there that i just don't want to say publicly um, uh, one of the main reasons is the comments, nothing says let's fight, you know, on, on the internet, kind of like how to sharpen your knives or Harley Davidson or religion or something like that. It's just a very contentious issue. So to avoid, you know, nasty, nasty people want to get it online. I don't want to get in, get into it online with anybody. Uh, so there's quite a few sharpening videos I have just on Patreon because if people want to learn about it, great. And if people have, you know, their old snide remarks, I, I don't care. I don't, I don't want to hear what they have to say. So I can just kind of avoid that by putting that there. Um, 
but there's a lot of different options. Um, you know, the Wicked Edge, the TS Prof Sharpeners, uh, even Lansky, stuff like that. And the reason that I say that this is a tool that I really enjoy is, you know, when you're making a custom knife for someone, when somebody's buying a knife from me, I genuinely want them to have the best sharpened knife that they've ever had in their lives. I'll do a lot of the material removal when I'm putting in the secondary bevel. And when I say a lot, it's usually not a lot. But, you know, if you've got a bushcrafter knife that's 20 thousandths of an edge, you know, 20 thousandths thick at the edge, um, I'll take that down with a 220 grit on my belt grinder. And once I've kind of got a burr coming, then I can jump onto my fixed angle knife sharpeners like the Wicked Edge or the TS Prof. And I can just put in like an incredibly even... Uh, you can get up to a mirror finish in in a matter of like five to ten minutes. So, those are things that I pretty much use on every single knife. It, it all depends. There are some knives that I will just hit with the paper wheels or something like that, or or sometimes I'll just use the jigs that I've made on my uh, for my belt grinder. But the fixed angled knife sharpener that is something that I strongly recommend. Uh, when I got into knife making. Knife making wasn't that difficult for me, but sharpening was brutal. And I know there's there's a whole argument about stone sharpening and yada, yada, yada. I mean, we could fight forever about all kinds of stuff. Ultimately, if the knife is sharp and you haven't overheated it to get to sharp, I, I don't think it really matters which way you go about doing it. So that's one tool that I love. I use all the time. Uh, the next one on my list here is a Kydex press. Uh, this was one that I made, very simple. Again, I had some big blocks of maple wood kicking around. I put some hinges on it and some foam. And uh, you can you can buy specific Kydex foam, which is what I did. Um, I think it was from a company called knifekits.com or usaknifemaker.com. I don't know exactly which one, but if you have a look at those websites, uh, some of them will, spe- will sell specific Kydex foam, and it actually lasts a long time. The first Kydex press I made, I just used like the foam camping, like sleeping pad, and that worked okay. It worked great for the first one or two, but it had such a memory that it would start shrinking down, and I think the heat of the Kydex would kind of kind of deteriorate that foam and it wouldn't last long at all. I mean, I'd be putting new pieces of foam there every two or three knives. Uh, whereas this Kydex specific foam, I mean, I don't know, I'd probably get 50 to 100 knives. Uh, I'm still on my original set actually. So <laughs> I do need to swap it out, but I'm just using different areas of it and stuff. But uh, I've probably got like hundreds of knives on there. So uh, definitely worth looking at, easy to make. You can also buy pre-made ones and I think those work great too. I just didn't want to, but uh, Kite Express. And then the last knife making specific thing that I can think about is uh, my doer. And that's just the container that holds my liquid nitrogen. Again, if you're not doing any stainless steel work, probably don't need to look at a doer. Uh, having said that, you do get a significant increase in performance with high carbon steels if you give them cryogenic treatments. And uh, generally, all of my knives get cryogenic treatments. Um, uh, you know, a lot of these high carbon steels, you can actually increase the wear resistance by like 400%. And so that's going to prevent scratching and, and marks from rubbing in and out of Kydex sheaths. And if I already have a doer because of the fact that I'm working with stainless steels, I just think it's foolish for me not to cryo treat my high carbon steels. So uh, pretty much every single knife I make gets a cryo treatment. And uh, that's a specific tool. Obviously, the doer is probably used mostly for, um, you know, storing semen for cattle and stuff like that. Also, uh, around here, they'll use it for cold, like like cold branding of their cattle. So rather than using a hot iron, uh, they'll put their branding irons in liquid nitrogen, get it really, really cold, and burn the brand onto the animal that way. But uh, that kind of wraps it up for the specific knife-making tools that I have in my shop. 
I hope I didn't forget anything. I'm, I'm sure there's going to be a few people that have seen my videos and, and been like, oh, dude, you forgot this. So uh, I'll try and update this list, keep it as active as possible on simplelife.ca, the corresponding post to this podcast. Now, we are going to get into general tools. Um, these are not specific for knife making, but obviously these are tools that I use in my knife making. And uh, they're in no particular order, but we'll just kind of start with them. And again, these are some things that some people may not use at all. Uh, the first one I have listed here is a sandblast cabinet. Now, I use my sandblast cabinet for two main things. Uh, the first one is when I'm doing synthetic handle scales, uh, G10, micarta, stuff like that. I really like to blast the inside portion of it, the portion that's going to get glued on uh, with the sandblast media. And I just used a recycled glass, so it's fairly coarse. And I can just blast it real quick, boom, boom. You get a really nice pitted surface and you kind of give um, more surface area for the epoxy to bond to. I always think about it like peaks and valleys. If you have a really flat, smooth uh, piece of material, uh, you know, the exact surface area that you have is the area of that piece. Whereas if you really rough it up and you put these little peaks and valleys, each one of those peaks and valleys adds surface area and it adds more more area for the, the epoxy to act on. So I really like hitting up the inside of my scales with that, just boom, boom. Sometimes I will use it for you know, certain finish. If you get your G10 really nicely cleaned up and even, uh, you actually get a really good texture if you just blast it with a sandblast real quick. And then I also use it for blasting blades. Uh, primarily, if I'm just going to be acid etching it, I really like, again, that kind of, you have a little bit more surface area uh, for the acid to work on. I find I get much quicker results, much darker results if I sandblast the blades first. Um, but then sometimes I've had a few people request just a sandblasted finish because it gives a really nice matte color to it. Um, just, it just kind of takes away the shine. Sometimes you can take away some scratches, the scratch marks and stuff like that. But uh, those are the things I use my sandblast cabinet for. And it's a tool that I use all the time. I, If it ever something ever happened to it, I would have to replace it because it's kind of part of my workflow for almost every knife that I make. Uh, the exception obviously being like a Japanese kitchen knife. I don't use it for any of those processes, but little EDCs, fixed blades, uh, anything acid stone washed, uh, that usually gets hit with a sandblaster. All right, I feel like this is going to be one of my longer solo podcasts, but that's good. We, we've still got a lot of stuff to get through. Um, the next item on my list is a drill press. I happen to have two of them, and then I have a milling machine that I typically have set up with a countersink bit. Essentially, it it's kind of acts like another uh, drill press most of the time, but I really like having two drill presses. Uh, one's much larger than the other one, so I use my smaller one for uh, pilot holes, anything that I'm doing smaller, and then my bigger one is for anything over a cord range. And uh, drill press, something that... Um, you know, that's definitely like a basic tool when you're getting into setting up any any shop, really. If you're doing metal fabrication, woodworking, even a small little shop in your shed to kind of fix stuff around your house, drill press can be a huge, huge advantage. Uh, bench vise. This is, again, one of these standard tools. I think every single person on earth should have a half-decent bench vise. And I use it all the time in knife making. Uh, the one that I have happens to have like a, an anvil side to it. So the part where the thread goes in and out, it's got a big flat spot that you can hammer. And I use that when I'm center punching things. Um, yeah, I, I don't really need to say too much. Bench vise are super handy. I have one uh, just like what uh, Jeff had when he did his his uh, knife clamp so I can flip it upside down and I can put pipe in it. And uh, I actually never have used that feature, but it's nice to know it's there. And um, 
you can spend a lot of money on vices. You can get like really super expensive Wiltons. Um, I just have something that's not like the cheapest thing you can get, but it's also just kind of like a no name and it's been working well for me. A few things to consider when you're buying a vise. Uh, size is important. You want to get a fairly decent size one, um, probably like four or six inch jaws. And then one thing that I really like to look for in a vise is a swivel base. And that just allows you, you know, not necessarily for knife making and stuff like that, but for other projects, if I've got a really long piece of pipe that I want to put in there, but I, you know, I need to make sure it doesn't hit the wall or something, you can kind of rotate that around, have it stick out any which way, and then even overhanging it over my bench so that, say if I've got a, a piece that I want to support on the ground and hold upright, I can do that with my bench vise because I've got it mounted right on the corner. And that, so just always think about that when you're setting up your vise, how could you use it and, and set it up in a way that you can maximize its utility, even if you don't plan on doing that, even if it's just for like, you know, clamping a knife for, for hand sanding or something like that. You'd be amazed that once you have it and you know that it, it has more versatility to it, you end up using that, you know. Uh, so that's that. Um, milling machine is what I have next. And this is a tool that I would not want to be without, particularly when I'm doing... Um, wasp style handles or any type of a hidden tang when I want to set that initial opening for the slot it's just I mean it, I kind of feel bad almost because you know you see a lot of guys that, that get these really nice wall handles and they don't have a milling machine they're doing it all by drilling a series of holes and then filing out the gaps um, it's almost too easy the way that I do it I just I have my bits I stick it in there boom I cut a slot and I just have to touch it with a file a little tiny like a needle file and I've got a really great fit on the tang of my knives so uh, definitely something worth looking at I know they're expensive I ended up getting mine for like a smoking deal I think I got my lathe and my milling machine for a thousand bucks uh, off the gentleman that I bought and I actually went to buy just a lathe and he said oh if you give me a couple hundred more bucks I'll throw in the milling machine so I think uh, realistically I ended up getting that milling machine for $300 <laughs> which I think they're about like over two grand for the one that I have and it's just like a mini uh, milling machine good for knife making you can't do a lot of heavy cuts in steel um, and that's the limitation to anything that's kind of smaller even little lathes and stuff like that they just don't have the weight behind them the, the new lay that i just got hooked up i got it working this week i mean it's a heavy beast i think it's like a made in 1960 or something like that it's made in england and that thing is fantastic and one of the reasons that it cuts so well is just because it weighs so much but uh milling machine good little tool to have worth it and uh, if you're on the fence about buying one i would definitely buy one the next item i have is a dust collector now this i do use for woodworking and for handle uh, shaping and stuff like that I do not use my dust collector for any metal applications anymore um, I did I remember using it and I had a comment on YouTube somebody said oh be careful you're gonna start a fire and I remember thinking I didn't respond to him but I was like oh come on don't tell me what to do and it was the very next day <laughs> I actually was grinding and I started a fire in my dust collector so definitely something you want to look out for I know you can put in like different traps and there's like homemade jobbies where people will put like a, a bucket of water and they'll have the inlet going into there and the outlet on the other side. So, you know, in theory, every spark should hit the water and be extinguished. But I find that metal dust isn't as bad as wood dust, right? Wood dust is really light and it, it can float around in the air. I find that metal dust typically just falls because it weighs more. And so I don't find that metal dust is a problem. I don't really ever have metal dust like on my computer at the other side of the shop. It's always the wood dust that I have issues with. So uh, to me, it's important to keep that controlled. Um, and the dust collector does a great job for that. I've actually got some new piping and, and a couple new things. It's going to be a video up on YouTube soon 
uh, I'm doing some serious modifications to the way I use my dust collector with my grinder. And I'm really excited about that. Um, hopefully in the next couple of weeks that'll be done and I can share that with you on the YouTube. Uh, next tool, I guess this is kind of obvious, but a hammer. <laughs> I mean, I use hammers all the time when you're laying out, um, you know, you're going to drill your holes. Uh, and with the hammer, I guess I would put a center punch and a pin punch. Uh, the reason for a pin punch is when you're fitting up handle scales, if you're using the pin material that you're going to use, obviously you generally want a nice tight fit. And so I'm always constantly using my little hammer and my pin punch to like knock the pins in and out as I'm setting things up. And then center punch, obviously for marking out your holes so you can get repeatable holes exactly where you want them and your drill, your drill bit doesn't wander around. Uh, stainless steel ruler. Uh, I have the, what are they like, an 18-inch stainless steel ruler, has the metric and imperial. And I find that I actually don't use a tape measure in my shop at all specific for knife making. I mean, 18 inches, that gives you a decent amount to measure. I like them because they're flexible. So often if you, um, you know, if you've got a curved surface or something like that, you can just kind of bend the ruler around it, use it as a straight edge, use it to kind of center things, mark things out. Uh, those are tools that sometimes my kids will come into the garage and they'll borrow my stainless steel ruler and I'll go out to work and, and it kind of brings me to a halt. If I don't have them sitting there, I've got two hanging up, a short one and a long one. Um, I can't work for very, very long in my shop, maybe an hour before I'm like, oh, great, where's my ruler? I need it now. So that's a tool that I actually buy them on Amazon. I always have a stockpile of them because they disappear. Uh, they're handy in the house where the kids are building their airplanes or whatever they do, uh, but they're also super handy out in the shop. And then the other measuring device that I use a lot of is a, um, a caliper, just the super duper cheap calipers. Um, really great for laying things out. You can actually use them as a scribe. Uh, the jaws are hardened on them, so you can like scribe out lines if you want to find like the center of your handle so that your pinholes are lined up. Um, just really, really handy for all sorts of different things. Measuring the thickness, measuring your edge thickness. Uh, I've got two of them hanging up all the time. Use them all the time every single day. And then actually one that didn't make the list, but it just came to my mind, is a digital height gauge. And some of you, if you've seen my YouTube videos, um, I have two of these. One of them is that basically it's a, a tool that you use in conjunction with a, a really flat surface. So I have a granite surface plate and it's got a digital readout. So if I want to set uh, something at exactly half of an inch, I can just measure up. You zero out on your flat surface that you're measuring off of, run it up, and then you can lock it in. So I could scribe lines on metal. Um, one of them, I actually have a pencil taped to it very rigidly. And so when I'm, say, centering the handle to a knife on a hidden tang, I can support the the blade, the flat part of a blade on a one, two, three block, and I can actually scribe along that uh, the different sides and it, it makes centering your handles really easy uh, and particularly what I use it for is when I'm doing Japanese wall style handles so that in conjunction with a one two three block uh, definitely tools they use an awful lot <clears throat> all right I just had to stop and get a breather there for a minute <laughs> I'm doing a lot of talking uh, hopefully this is a uh, good information for you guys again if you have uh, any specific stuff you want me to delve deep into some of it just let me know um but let's continue on. We are still in the category of the general tools. We're about halfway done uh, that category. Uh, next one is files. Just the general. I always use the mill bastard file. Um, you can buy them or they call them an axe file sometimes. So one side will be a single cut and that's usually the finer side. And then one side will be a double cut, which is obviously coarser and removes more material. 
Uh, use files a lot. Uh, one thing I use them for quite often is just knocking the edges off. Say when you're profiling a knife on the grinder, often you have the slightest little bit of a burr hanging down. And sometimes I'll just take my file and just one pass, you can kind of knock that off so that it's always going to lay flat if you're like marking where your center, uh, you know, your, your center grind line is going to go uh, into heat treat. Sometimes if I heat treat before grinding bevels, I want to make sure I have all the sharp edges off so it doesn't poke through the material uh, through the stainless steel foil pouch. And uh, a little file are super handy to have uh you know you can use them for all kinds of things you can make knife with a file I, I did a whole series on uh making a knife with a file and i know a gentleman night turtle knives on instagram if you want to see a guy that is prolific at making knife knives with a file check out his work he makes his knives and he doesn't have a belt grinder and uh, it's incredible how much that guy files I'd, I'd be interested to find out uh, how many files he actually goes through and then obviously along with a file uh, buy yourself a file card essentially it's like a wire brush but it's a little bit different and if you have a file and you're not cleaning it regularly it's it's just not going to last for you a file card is absolutely critical um these and sell them at Home Depot. Wherever you buy the file, they'll usually sell a file card. And uh, clean your file after every use. You're good to go. And also, as we talked about before, a little chalk in there. You can load it up. It helps prevent loading, uh, particularly if you're using it on something like aluminum or brass or a softer metal. Uh, they tend to really load up the files quickly, and then they're not cutting. And then the one thing, too, I mentioned, I mean, uh, for most of us, we probably know this, but I see a lot of people doing it. Files cut in only one direction. And sometimes I'll see people keeping pressure back and forth, forward and backwards, forward and backwards. And I'll tell you, that damages files very quickly. And if, if you don't believe me, just take one of your files and keep constant hard pressure forwards and backwards and, and do that for a couple of minutes and then have a look at the teeth. You're going to find a lot of them are gone and those that aren't gone are dull. So files cut one direction. Generally, it's always a push cut. You push cut, lift it up, bring it back, push cut, lift it up, bring it back. Again, that's fairly rudimentary, but it's amazing how many people don't know that. And uh, let's just spread that around. We can all start using files properly. The next item on the list, toaster oven. Now, I use a toaster oven primarily for... Kydex. I used to do tempering in there, um, and I actually would like to do the modification. Again, Mr. Bob Rankin, that guy's a genius. He modified his toaster oven, um, lined it with KO wool, and put a PID controller in there so he can actually keep very accurate temperatures. And if that were the case, then a toaster oven is most certainly something usable for uh, tempering right? Because it's, it's, it's much better. With, the problem with a toaster oven, even a kitchen oven, is that the way their controllers are set up is it's going to overshoot one way. So if you set it for 400 degrees, it might go to 420, 425. And they design it to overshoot because then the elements are just shut off. And then it comes down to a certain degree. And I don't exactly know what that window is, but it is programmed to a window. So say once it's come back down to like 375, then it'll turn it back on again. And it's just a constant overshoot, undershoot, overshoot, undershoot. And so that's one of the reasons why a toaster oven is not ideal for tempering. Um, I, I've done that still. And, uh, and again, I, I honestly don't know really how much the difference is. Um, but since I have a, a digital kiln, I use that for my tempering now. It's just a better way to go about it. Um, but the toaster oven works great for Kydex. 
I usually set mine to about 300, but I, I check it constantly. And I'll put it in there and I actually force myself to squat in front of it because it's uncomfortable. But so many times I've, I've put it in there and been like, oh, okay, let me just check something. And I, I burn my kydex. It just melts. So I always put it in there and I do not leave the front of the uh, toaster oven. And uh, you can sit there and do some squats or something like that. But just keep in mind, they'll overshoot and undershoot again. Uh, but that's what I use the toaster oven for. Next on the list are drill bits and countersinks. Again, this is fairly uh, rudimentary things. These aren't complicated, fancy tools. Uh, buy good ones, though. Uh, SKS is a great brand. Dormer, uh, Walter. Uh, the good quality drill bits, if you use the right cutting speed, they will last you a long time. And if you're curious about what cutting speed you should be using with RPM, let's see if I got this off the top of my head. Uh, it's four times the cutting speed divided by the diameter. Uh, cutting speed for mild steel, I believe, is like 100 feet per second, 100 feet per minute. Uh, so say if you had a half inch, uh, a half inch bit, and you're, cut, you're drilling through mild steel, be four times 100, so 400 times 0.5, which makes it 800 RPM. That's how you should be running a half inch. I think a lot of people uh, end up running too slow, and uh, if you have your proper speed, it's going to be pretty quick. And then you can use a lot of force too, right? Like when you're drilling holes, you want to make sure uh, that you're actually putting a decent amount of downward pressure. I see a lot of people go to drill holes and they just kind of hold it there. Uh, it'll work hard in the steel or the drill bit will, will heat up and it won't cut properly. Um, but four times the cutting speed divided by the diameter as a decimal, that will give you your proper speed. Next tool on the list, this is one that I use all the time, and it's a little X-Acto knife. You know those little hobby knives that have the replaceable blades? I buy those blades in packs of 100, and I use this for uh, when I'm taping up a knife. Often I'll kind of trim the tape so it's the exact same profile of the knife itself, particularly when I'm doing Kydex. Uh, you don't want a whole bunch of extra flop hanging over because obviously that's going to affect the retention. So what I'll do is if I'm going to do a Kydex sheath, I'll lay the tape over a two-inch wide piece of masking tape, and I'll take an X-Acto knife, and I cut the exact profile. I just kind of lean the blade against the the X-Acto knife. I'll put that right against the blade that, that I'm taping off, and I just drag it around there, and it cuts a really nice, crisp, clean line, and uh, it works fantastic. I use those for other things too. Um, Kydex, when I'm cleaning up the inside of Kydex sheaths, I love using those little X-Acto knives because it's just like a little pen, right? You've got so much control. Um, after I grind the Kydex sheath, I'll just kind of cut a little chamfer on the inside so I can get rid of any any of that melted plastic hanging over the edge. And uh, I use those things all the time. Again, I buy like blades 100 at a time. I probably go through two to three X-Acto blades every uh Every week, I use that thing a lot. Always nice to have a nice sharp blade. Don't buy one and, and not get spare blades. It's kind of a, your blade's going to get dull really quickly and you're going to regret it. So, And along with the X-Acto knife, I use razor knives. I like Olfa knives, the ones that have, you know, the longer blades and they, they kind of have these little segments that you can break off as one gets dull. I use these for cutting up sandpaper sheets into smaller sizes. Um... I use them for scoring kydex. You know, you can score kydex like you would drywall and just bend it and actually snaps along that line. Uh, trimming uh, the different uh, abrasive sheets to my disc grinder. Use X-Acto knife for that. And uh, just all sorts of general things. Uh, they're super handy. Always like to have at least one or two uh, razor knives, the Olfa knives sticking around. And then they also sell, I'll see if I can put a link to it in the description, but they sell this thing. It looks like a hockey puck. 
and it's got one little slide that opens up and it's got a little slot and so what you can actually do is you stick the end of your blade in there and you twist it and it will break it off but then it falls into this sealed container uh, one of the worst things with the exacto knives when you go trim them down uh, what I used to always do is wrap them in tape, some masking tape, a couple layers, and kind of loose so that they wouldn't cut my garbage bag. Um, that's the worst thing. You know, you go and carry out the trash, and all of a sudden you have an X-Acto knife in there or, or something like that, and it just slits a side open, and next thing you know, you're picking up garbage before your cats get to it. Um, so that works really good, these little things. I'll, I think it's called the Olfa DC3, but that might not be correct, but uh, I'll put a link to that if I can find one. Really handy to have. Next tool is a one, two, three block. I guess we kind of discussed that with the height gauge. Uh, I use one, two, three blocks for all kinds of things. Uh, a lot of them will actually have some of the holes on there uh, that are tapped uh, to three eighths. And I'll use those often for stops on my drill press. And then also when I'm drilling out my kydex, I'll put them on my drill press so that I've got a little bit of space uh, so I can drill through and uh, they work really good. If you don't know a one, two, three block, it's basically a, a precision ground piece of steel. Usually it's hardened and it's one inch by two inch by three inch. They're kind of a staple in the machining areas uh, in machine shops, stuff like that. Very inexpensive. You can get them on Amazon or wherever. And uh, they're also great to kind of, uh, when I'm drilling out uh, my handle, say if I'm drilling the pins, I can clamp the, the tang of the knife to the material I'm drilling. And then I've, I use these and I kind of set the knife as I'm drilling on one, two, three blocks. And it lifts it up off the table of the drill press. So you've got clearance for your clamps underneath. And so that works really good. Uh, you can use them for truing up your platen to your work rest, uh, checking things for square. I use mine often. I can set the blade of a knife on my granite surface plate on the one, two, three block. And that way I can use my, my height gauge and kind of mark out accurate lines. Uh, those are tools that if I ever had uh, lost mine, I would have to replace them. I have four one, two, three blocks in my shop and I use them all the time. What do we have next? Okay, next up is the Fordham uh, rotary tool. Obviously, the Dremel does pretty much the exact same thing, um, but it's completely different. I had a Dremel, and then I bought my Fordham, and if my Fordham ever died, I would go and get another Fordham because it is just so much more powerful, uh, just better. You've got the nice foot control, variable speed. It's nice to be able to vary the speed while you're, you know, you can hold your workpiece and the tool, the rotary tool in your hand. And then just so many different attachments for buffing Kydex sheaths. That's what I use to buff the edges of my Kydex sheath is my Fordham with like a little felt bob. I'll put some black polishing compound on there and it just kind of gives a real nice smooth finish, makes it look like a solid piece of plastic. Uh, 3M makes a product called 3M Bristle Brushes. If you Google that, those things are amazing for taking off uh, like heat treat staining that happens with stainless steel. Sometimes you get those rainbow colors. And on some of my knives where I do like the needle scale texture, I don't want to grind that away. And even a Scotch-Brite puts two, uh, two rough of lines in there. And so I'll take these Scotch-Brite Scotch bristle brushes and it just takes away all that discoloration, uh, kind of polishes up the metal. And you can get so many different grits of that. Uh, so many different attachments. And... Uh, Fordham is just wonderful. They actually sponsored a giveaway on my YouTube channel a while ago. And uh, no, not a while ago. It was like at 50,000. So it was a couple years ago, three years ago maybe. And I gave one away. And uh, they're just a tool that I use all the time. It's something I really would not like to work in my shop 
without my Fordham. And again, you can do like cool wood carving as like a side hobby thing or just a relaxation. Um, so many different things you can do with them. Uh, real small drill press if you got like just super tiny, tiny holes. Uh, I've got some drill bits that none of my drill presses go small enough. Like the chucks aren't that fine. And so uh, that's one of these that have a nice little uh, Jacobs chuck style handpiece. Works really great, really quick uh, uh, tool changes. So that's definitely a tool that I absolutely love having. Another tool here, the vibratory tumbler. Now, this is one that uh, has not made too much of an appearance on my YouTube channel. I made a rotary tumbler, and that still works okay. Uh, with that one, I actually just use gravel if I'm doing a certain stone wash on it. Uh, but I bought one of these vibratory tumblers, but the smaller ones. They kind of look like a big popcorn bowl, and they're on this like this base, and they're kind of spring-loaded, and there's this you know, some eccentric weight on a, a motor or something like that. And I've started using ceramic media, and I can get a really nice acid finish in like two minutes. Um, if I leave it in for 10 minutes, it'll just completely clean the acid off. Uh, but it also gives a really nice raw finish. So what I'll do sometimes for like EDC knives uh, out of stainless steel, and I want a really nice kind of a kind of a satin finish where there's almost like no texture whatsoever. Uh, I'll leave it in this vibratory tumbler for like two hours, pull it out, and I run WD-40 in mine. And it's incredible the the finish you can get. And, you know, for certain EDC things, there's a certain sense where sometimes it's nice to try to make it look factory, right? Like you don't want it to, to look like a homemade jobby. And, you know, if you look at the, the bevels of, you know, certain knives, um, Thinking particularly about like Griptilian, uh, my Benchmade's and stuff. Benchmade has a very interesting surface finish on their bevels. It's it's kind of matte. It, it doesn't really have any distinctive direction to like patterns, like like grind patterns or anything like that. And I can reproduce that with this vibratory tumbler with the ceramic media. So really like that tool. I've actually just kind of upped my usage of it in the last couple months, starting to use it a lot more than I used to. And it works really good. And then the last list that I have, last thing that I have on this list is a digital angle finder. Uh, so I use one that's called a tilt box two, uh, but basically it's like a little cube and it's got magnets on all four sides of it. Uh, so you can stick it to something, turn it on, and then you can zero it wherever you are. Uh, really handy for setting up, um, you know, angles when you're grinding and stuff like that. Uh, you can zero it and then any adjustment, I think it goes to, what do we got? We got degrees, minutes, and seconds. I don't think it actually go. it doesn't use those scales. I think it's like 0.1 of a degree, whatever that is, uh, in however many minutes. So it's not like ridiculously crazy precise, but it's definitely as precise as, as I've ever needed in any processes I do in my knife making. And again, I'll use that for setting up, uh, you know, you can adjust your platen to your work rest to give yourself an exact angle if you, uh, instead of having a, a variable grinding jig you know you could just have a solid block of steel or even a block of wood that was square and then you can just move your work rest accordingly um, but I find it really handy for things like if you're putting swedges in stuff like that um, often if I'm taking off certain platens and putting them back on I want to make sure that my my work rest or my platen is exactly 90 degrees to my work rest uh, so it works really good for stuff like that as well just allows you to repeatedly set things up check things out and uh, I always use this digital angle finder. It's one tool that I didn't have for quite a few years, and I probably only got it like maybe a year and a half, two years ago. And um, again, one of those tools, I'm like, dude, I should have bought this earlier. <sighs> I need to take a breather here and a drink. Uh, just, just a drink of water. Don't, don't get too excited. So I'm showing like 50 minutes in or so. 
So this is good. This is a good uh, <laughs> good spew for me. Okay, so the category that we are into now is consumables. I need to take a little break, stretch yourself out a bit. I'm kind of getting stiff just sitting here talking to you guys. Consumables, consumables, consumables. This is the one that I actually really like because uh, this whole category, because this is probably one of the, the it can be one of the least expensive areas to tinker around with, uh, to find new things. And, you know, like I, I tell people all the time, whenever you're ordering belts, uh, order one belt you've never had before. You know, I've been saying that on my YouTube videos for years now, is that when you place a belt order, always pick one belt that you've never used because you might end up finding a new favorite or just confirm the fact that, yeah, there's a reason why I've never ordered that before. This thing was a joke. I kind of do the same thing with different consumables, but let's get into it. So uh, the very first consumable obviously is a knife maker uh, abrasives, and this can be in your belt form in sheets, like sanding sheets, and then rolls uh, like emery cloth, stuff like that. So this is something we don't need to get too crazy into. Um, you know, with the belts, there's so many different types of belts. Uh, we kind of talked a bit about that. With the sheets, I always buy my sheets in 9 by 11 The reason for that is that I have a 9-inch disc. And that's one thing, too. If you're thinking about putting together a disc grinder, I, I would lean towards the 9-inch side. I know some people go with a 12 or, or something bigger. But the hard part about that is that it can be hard to find sheets the right size. Um one thing that I use is stuff called 3M feathering adhesive, and that is the stuff to use with the disc grinder. Um, you put it on, you kind of spread it out with like a, a business card or something like that, and then you put your first sheet on, uh, trim it to size, and use that sheet. By the time you're done with that, you can peel it off, and the adhesive stays to the disc and not the paper. Uh, so you can actually peel that off and you don't have to put any new adhesive on. You just stick another piece on there. And I found that it lasts for about 20 paper changes, at least 20 to 40. All depends on how clean your work area is, how much dust is in the air and how much dust can get onto the adhesive uh, in the process of switching it. But it works really good. And then the paper that you pull off your disc grinder has no residue whatsoever. So there's no adhesive on there. Uh, I've had some where I'll, I'll go with one grit, you know, I'll grind something, I'll pull the paper off, I can set it aside in a clean location. And then when I want that grit again, I can reuse that disc that, that I'd just taken off. So it works really good. Uh, again, I'll link to that in the, uh, the, the webpage post or whatever that accompanies this. But it's called 3M Feathering Disc Adhesive, and I have the Type 2. I have no clue what Type 1 is, what the difference is, but I have Type 2. Um, but that's one thing too, we're kind of got off topic there, but the discs, um, nine inch disc, you have a nine by 11 piece of paper. I'll always just take like a stack of five or 10 pieces of paper, uh, measure out on my little mat. Oh, I guess that's one thing that should have been on the uh, general tools too, is those little cutting mats, uh, like by Fiskars that have the grid on them. I use that thing all the time. And, uh, this just brought that up. So those little workbench mats that have the grid, usually it's laid out in inches and stuff use those constantly, especially when I'm cutting like uh, Kydex down. It's nice not to have to reach for anything. I can just do all my measuring on the workbench. And uh, when I'm cutting up these papers, uh, like abrasive sheets, I can measure it out to nine inches, cut it. And the one thing that does, it gives me nice little two inch strips of abrasive. Uh, so it's two inches by nine inches. And those are really handy for finish sanding on, on, on different parts of the knife. And then I've got these nine inch by nine inch squares. And I'll just stick one of those to my disc. And then I just put my razor blade on the edge of the 
the disc, trim all the way around it, and boom, I've got myself a nice uh, piece of abrasive on there. And again, whatever uh, whatever grit you can find, your, your abrasive paper, which is typically what you're hand sanding with, you can match that to a disc. Now, the one thing I would say too, um, I think it's just like the, the way that the discs work. They actually do a finer job than what would be like a back and forth sand on the exact same abrasive grit. So if you have a 220 and you hand sand, say, a piece of G10 to 220, uh, you'll have a certain finish. But if you take that 220 and put it on a disc and then finish it, like like do your sanding with the disc, it's actually smoother. And it doesn't make sense, but it's a fact. It's just the fact of the matter. Um, there's something about just, you know, all those, the way those grits kind of smear and spiral and stuff like that. I don't know exactly what it is, but you get a much smoother finish for, for the, uh, specific grit rating, uh, than you do on a belt grinder or by hand. So that's one thing to think about with a, um, a disc grinder as well. It's very easy. Like in a matter of minutes, you can get like a nice mirror polish on steel, uh, when you're using the disc grinder. And I find it takes much longer to do that with a belt grinder. So anyways, abrasives, uh, really handy to have. And then the rolls, the emery paper and stuff like that. I find that just handy to have when you're, uh, you know, say if you want to clean up the spine of a knife, um, I've got, I think I've got like from 80, then I go to 220, then 400, and then 800. Uh, you can get really nice finish cleaning up the spine of a knife. Sometimes you got the like the inside finger choil of a kitchen knife, like a Japanese knife. It's nice to round that up. And I like the abrasive. They call it emery paper because it's kind of got a really rigid cloth backing. And you can actually grab it and rip it lengthwise. So say if you cut off like a little 10-inch long piece and it's one inch wide, say if you want a quarter inch just to get into a little corner, you just kind of pinch off roughly about a quarter and just rip it. Just and just tears right in half. Works really good and it's really cheap. You can get like 100 foot rolls and just kind of hang it up on the wall somewhere. Always super handy to have around. Next item is epoxy. Now, obviously, it goes without saying, uh, you're going to go through epoxy if you're making a lot of knives. The stuff that I use is a DevCon two part epoxy, five minute. I like the five minute. Uh, but most five-minute epoxies that I've used, you do need to work quickly. So obviously you want to make sure that you've pre-tested everything. Like I always make sure all the pins have gone in already. Um, everything's ready to go. Mix up your epoxy and you got to get busy. You want to get that thing clamped on there. Uh, but I have had, I've done a lot of destructive testing with epoxies and I'm amazed at how strong that stuff is. Uh, so epoxy, and then there's also slower stuff too. Depending on your style, how you work, you might want to look at changing that up. Another one that I use is the West Systems Epoxy and I've got what they call the fast cure setup, um, but it's still, I mean, I think it takes about 45 minutes before it starts getting real, like, hard to work with. So they call it fast, I call it slow, but I know they have some epoxies that are, like, it, it takes a day before it starts to set up. So uh, epoxy is definitely a consumable that I use a lot of. Now, as soon as I had said epoxy, I thought about popsicle sticks because I go through a lot of popsicle sticks and obviously I use those to mix up my epoxy. I used to always just try and find scraps of anything laying around and it was just kind of a pain. So I went, you know, you just go to the dollar store or some craft store and you just buy a big old bag of popsicle sticks, uh, keep them right beside your epoxy and it's just nice. Mix it up, boom, done. The other thing I use popsicle sticks for is when I'm putting my finishes on wall style handles or like hidden tang handles. It's nice because I'll take one of those little cheap spring clamps 
Oh, shoot, clamps, general tools. I didn't have clamps in there. Let's just put that in here right now. Clamps, spring clamps, any types of clamps. Buy more clamps. You'll never have enough of them, general tools. Okay, good. Now, back to popsicle sticks. I'll take one of these little spring clamps, and I'll just clamp an end of a popsicle stick, and that way I'll hold it straight up and down. And I can put my finish on my wall handle, slide it over the popsicle stick, and let it dry. You know, I can do multiples. I can move them around. Works really good for that. So I like to use a lot of popsicle sticks. With that, masking tape. When I'm mixing up my epoxy, I always usually just do the old Jimmy Darista move. Uh, pull up, peel up a whole bunch of little pieces, like four inch, you know, three or four of them in a row. Got a nice place to mix your epoxy on. And then when you're done, you just peel it all up and throw it away. Cool thing with that too is you can always feel your epoxy heating up. I always just think it's cool. You know, once I'm pulling up my tape, it's pretty warm to the hand. And so it's like, oh good, I know my epoxy's working. I know I've tried uh, like little tiny silicone uh, containers and stuff like that. Uh, those were great too. I just I just didn't like. I was like, it's just one more thing. I, I use masking tape for everything. Why would I want something else? So I use it for that. Obviously, use it for protecting blades when I'm doing Kydex and then. Uh, when I'm shaping handles, you know, you've got your blade all finished up, wrap it up really good with masking tape. And I don't use any paper towel or anything in there. Uh, I just clean my knives really well, wrap them in masking tape when I'm ready to shape the handle and stuff like that. Um, other things, I always use uh, masking tape to protect the blade when I'm sharpening it. Like if I'm putting in the clamp of a fixed angle knife sharpener, I always, use to use a, I always like to use a little uh, masking tape for that. And what else do I use masking tape for? Yeah, that's pretty much it. But masking tape is something that I constantly use. And it's, it's so it's kind of freaking me out here with this whole this whole pandemic thing. You know, everybody decides to do home improvement and start like painting and staining. And uh, it was terrible to find paints. Um, <laughs> the, the shelves were bare, at least at the hardware stores near my house. And I remember going like at once a week checking for masking tape and they were out and they were out. And they're like, we don't know when we're getting it back. There's a huge demand for masking tape. Uh, so anyways, once I saw some, I ended up buying like 10 rolls. So I'm good for a while, but I definitely like to have a lot of masking tape on hand. Um, along with that, paper towels. I use paper towels constantly, and then we're going to throw in here to nitrile gloves. Obviously, when I'm doing epoxy, I always wear gloves because I don't want that stuff on my hands. Um, I don't wear any gloves when I'm grinding because I don't mind permadirt. I don't mind having dirt on my nails and stuff like that. I find if I wear gloves uh, when I'm grinding, like even those nitrile gloves, I mean, I always get so close. I touch the finger and the, the glove's gone anyway, so... Um, but when I'm doing like epoxies, if I'm working like with my uh, ferric chloride... Uh, for acid stone washing, um, all kinds of stuff where I don't want this certain stuff on my hands. Always like to have the gloves. And so I use a lot of rubber gloves and those nit nitrile gloves and a lot of paper towels. Obviously, paper towels, for, for what it sounds like, you know, using lacquer thinner, cleaning blades. Uh, when I'm prepping parts, as I clean them, I'll set them on a brand new clean piece of paper towel. That way, you know, they're not going to get contaminated with, you know, whatever might be on my workbench. Um, Windex kind of goes with paper towels. So I use Windex to neutralize acid for uh, when you come out of the acid stone wa acid wash of the ferric chloride. Uh, Windex, but it has to be the kind with the ammonia. You could also just get straight uh, ammonia. Uh, but then I also kind of like Windex for cleaning the blades off. It does a good job at getting rid of the streaks and stuff like that. So Windex is another consumable that I use. Also, after I do my electro etching, uh, I find sometimes if you just kind of, you know, you pull your stencil off, if you don't do anything with it, I kind of get weird things happening. Sometimes parts of the etch will go lighter. Um, sometimes they'll start to corrode if it's a high carbon blade. And so usually what I'll do is as soon as I pull my 
my uh, stencil off after electro etching. I'll hit it with a little bit of Windex and then wipe it off right away. And it just seems to neutralize everything and it kind of stops whatever was going on. And so that, you know, where I spray it is kind of where it stays, kind of stops whatever processes are happening. Um, kind of getting into this line of uh, chemicals, like different liquids. I use a, quite a bit of WD-40. Uh, like I mentioned, I do use WD-40 in my vibratory tumbler with my ceramic media. Uh, that's really nice, too, if you're doing this with high-carbon steel knives. I don't have to worry about rusting. Um, and then when I come out of my acid, acid, like if I'm doing an acid wash, I'll hit it with the, with the Windex to neutralize the acid. And then I'll wipe that down quickly. And then right away, I'll hit it with WD-40 and completely soak it. And that will just prevent any possibility of rusting, especially if it's like a carbon steel knife. I've had a few times when I've sprayed it down with WD or with the Windex and then I wipe it down and I'll set it on the bench, come out the next day and it's just started to turn. It's not even like rust, but it kind of turns the orange, right? Uh, that, that process has kind of started. So I always just soak them in WD-40 and then you're good to go. You can leave those sitting as long as you'd like and you'll come back to the blade even if I say if I'm doing a whole bunch of carbon knives and I know I'm not going to get to putting the handles on for a while, I'll just spray them down with WD-40, wrap them in paper towel, and you can leave those for as long as you want. You come back, you know you're going to have a nice, fresh, clean piece of steel to work with. Another chemical I like to use a lot is lacquer thinner, and I obviously use this for cleaning things up, uh, you know, cleaning the blade before uh, acid stone washing or, uh, you know, it goes to customer, make sure you get all the grease off of it, yada, yada. Uh, it does a good job. Sometimes if you're using like a white micarta as you're working it, say if you go to buff it or something like that, uh, with certain buffing compounds, you can actually do a lot of nice material removal. Uh, but sometimes it kind of stains the micarta if it's like a white or G10 or something like that. And I find the lacquer thinner actually does a pretty good job at getting those out of there. Um, so that's my preference. I know a lot of people will use like acetone or alcohol or something like that. I, I just like lacquer thinner. I can get it locally. I enjoy it. So that's what I use. Another consumable I go through a lot of, pretty much use on every knife, is layout dye. Uh, blue layout dye is what I like. Uh, you can get the stuff that's like um, uh, with a brush. So, you know, the brush is in the lid, so you can brush it on. I prefer the aerosol. Uh, I know Dicom, like Blue Dicom is a brand. You can get red. Uh, I really like the blue. And again, the aerosol can, I can just kind of spray it where I want. It dries way quicker than when you brush it on. And there's a lot of uses for this. If you're... Um, you know, say if you want to grind in a bevel to a certain height, uh, you can just kind of spray the blade, mark that out with a caliper. You can kind of follow the exact curvature of the cutting edge, uh, mark that in, um, laying out your holes. If you're, you know, cutting a knife out on template and stuff like that, you can, you can kind of spray this on there. And it just, it kind of makes your lines pop with your scribing, your measuring out. It's kind of like an old staple in machinist shops and a lot of knife makers use it for good reason. I know a lot of people actually uh, spray it on their bevels as they're grinding. If they're getting really, really close to their finished product and say if they switch to a new grit, they'll actually spray it, spray their blade with the uh, layout die. And then they can see once they've actually removed all the scratches from the previous grit. So uh, that's something worth having on hand all the time. Something that I always use. And uh, yeah, not that expensive, not not cheap, but it, it's not going to break the bank either. Uh, in lieu of that, Sharpie marker works fine too. You get those big fat tip Sharpies. I see a lot of guys use that instead. Uh, either one works great. Another adhesive that I use that's a, a chemical is a spray-on adhesive. Uh, something like the 3M 
Super 77, like a removable adhesive. Uh, often if I'm like prototyping a knife and I've got my drawing on paper and I'll just spray that, you know, once I cut the knife out, I'll spray the back of it with this uh, 3M, like a spray-on adhesive. I can just set it on my steel and it'll kind of glue itself to it, give me the lines to cut out, and then it'll come right off. You just kind of get some water on it, rub it around, and then wipe it with lacquer thinner. So it's not a permanent thing. I think they use it often in like upholstery and stuff like that. They can kind of spray the foam, stick the foam to a piece of wood, and really, it's it's going to stay there. I mean, obviously, if you grab it and yank, it's not it's not a real strong, strong bond, but it's going to do a pretty good job. Uh, I wouldn't use it for something. I see some people will, like, say if they'll glue, you know, pieces of super glue something to a, a, a milling machine or something like that. Or there's certain processes where you can kind of glue two things together, handle scales, and then just tap them off like that. Uh, this stuff is not strong enough for that. It will come loose, and it has a little bit of give. It's almost like a like a rubbery type of adhesive, but I use that for quite a few things. Probably the more and more I have knives templated, the less I use the spray-on adhesive, uh, but there's still times where it's like, you know what, it's really handy to have, and uh, actually that's what I use to put the foam on my Kite Express, the 3M uh, spray adhesive. Anything where it's not actually going to be pulled, but you just want something to stay put, it works really good for that, and also it's really nice for things like foams and stuff like that. Uh, does a great job. Ferric chloride. Talked about this a little bit. Uh, I get asked a lot um, what mixture I use, and there's a lot of different uh, ways people go about this. What I use is 75% ferric chloride and 25% apple cider vinegar. The reason for that is I'm not sure. <laughs> I had uh, I had some ferric chloride, and I didn't have quite enough in the container that I wanted to use, the, the tube that I had made. And so I just thought, well, let me just see what I have. I didn't have any regular vinegar, but we had some apple cider vinegar, and I filled it up. And then I went back and looked at it, and it was actually ended up being about uh, three-quarters to one-quarter. So it works really good. I've been using the exact same recipe for like three or four years now. And uh, especially on high carbon steels, man, I can darken those suckers up really nice, like black as night almost, and it works really good. So 75% ferric chloride, 25% apple cider vinegar. Um, I think that kind of wraps it up for the chemicals of the consumables, and we're actually doing fairly well. We're almost through our list here. No, here's one other one. Boost block oil. Two other ones, actually. One I had written down, one I didn't. So boost block oil is a, uh, the Boost is a, a company that makes cutting boards and they have this oil for uh, conditioning their cutting boards and it's called the Boost Block Oil, B-O-O-S. And it is really nice. It's got a combination of beeswax, mineral wax, all this stuff, uh, completely food safe. You can like just drink this stuff straight. And I mean, actually almost, I've never done it, but it smells really good. It smells like honey and uh, it does a great job. Uh, and it's a nice kind of a thick paste. And so you can kind of put on your handles. And if the wood hasn't been stabilized, I'll kind of wipe it on and I'll leave it sit there for, you know, a couple hours and you'll come back and you'll actually see where the pores of the wood are. Cause it'll kind of still be a little bit wet around there. And it actually kind of pulls itself into the wood. And uh, I find it does a fantastic job. So I use a lot of boost block oil. Um, you could put it on the blades to protect the blades if you'd wanted. Uh, and for kitchen knives, that's what I will use. Um, even high carbon steel knives, this stuff stays on it well enough. And, you know, when your client gets a knife, they can just kind of wipe it off, go to using it. You don't have to worry about it at all. And I, it works. it works really good. The other product that I use uh, to protect knives when I ship them is something called fluid film. And they sell that at a lot of like tractor supply stores um, in Canada. I'm not sure about the U.S., but in Canada, it's actually rated food safe. So you could use this on any food processing equipment. 
And it's interesting stuff. I'll spray it on the steel, and when you spray it, it kind of bubbles. It kind of almost has a reaction. And then I'll just kind of wipe it down. And as you're wiping it, it's kind of like, you know, like those pop rocks, that candy that used to stick in your mouth. And it's like, like, it almost feels like that under your fingers when you're wiping this stuff on. And it stays really well. Um, you know, you can just run under hot water and it'll kind of rinse it all away or take a cloth and wipe it down. Uh, but the nice thing is that it will completely protect your blade. Like you can, uh, we used to use this when we'd ship parts overseas, uh, for airport baggage conveyors. Um, some of these things would have to go in a shipping container over the ocean and, you know, obviously any, any exposed metal would just rust instantly. And we had a real problem with equipment getting to site and the guys would have to spend hours taking the rust off these shafts so they could get the gearboxes on them. And so what we would do is we'd just spray this fluid film on there, wrap it in, sh- in saran wrap or shrink wrap. And, uh, there would be no rusting whatsoever. Came off real easily. And that's when I first heard about this. Uh, so I've been using fluid film for like over 20 years, and I really like to protect my knives with it. I'll spray the entire knife down, handle and everything, kind of give it a little bit of wipe so it's not too excessive, and then I'll just wrap that in um, a zippy wrap, the little uh, shrink wrap that you can buy the little handheld pieces on. Oh, I guess that's another tool. Stink. So zippy wrap, that's another tool that I use constantly. Really handy for all sorts of things, whether you're, uh, you know, storing things, you want to bundle them together. I always bundle different bike parts when I'm disassembling bicycles. And uh, for shipping my knives, I use a lot of zippy wrap. So it's basically like stretch wrap, but it's about a four inch wide roll and it has a handle. And on the one side of the roll has a little bit of the tube that sticks out. And you can grab that with your thumb and your index finger uh, to act like a brake. So you can actually add tension as you're as you're wrapping it up. Awesome product use it all the time and uh, definitely something you're going to want in your shop. So zippy wrap, that's one that I didn't write down, but we just thought of it. Okay. So I think that covers it. And the last thing for consumables, this is something that's becoming harder and harder to find. And that's a telephone book. I like to use the telephone book paper uh, for testing my knives. I know newsprint's probably about the exact same thing. Uh, but again, uh, newspapers are kind of hard to come by. But if you can find yourself an old yellow pages or a current yellow pages, you've literally got like hundreds of nice square pieces of material that you can just test your edges with. And again, we're just looking when we do this test, we're kind of running it through. Uh, a key, I think, for this test is is forget about like showing people on the internet and trying to be like, oh, wow, look at this. When you're doing this test to actually be useful and learn about what you've just done, about your sharpening, about your knife, you want to make sure you get the entire blade. So start at the heel, start dragging it nice and slowly, and you want to feel if there's a spot that isn't as sharp as the rest, it will hang up there. And instantly you can feel, oh, okay, boom, I got to just work on this section a little bit better. And ideally, you would start at heel to tip in one continuous, nice and slow, like not just, you know, just go like that. That might be what it sounds like. And uh, it really gives you good indication as to uh, what your edge is like, your final edge. And so I go through, you know, every knife I make, I probably use two pieces of phone book paper. And uh, it's just really nice because it stores nicely. You can stick it on a shelf. You can tuck it away anywhere. And uh, yeah, if you guys find phone books, take them because they're getting harder and harder to find. But that is a really nice weight of paper. Uh, I know a lot of people like the big thing now is obviously a paper towel. Um, But I have really, really sharp knives and there's not a lot of them that can cut paper towels. Some of my real fine kitchen knives can, but any like EDC knife. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm just not that good at sharpening up. <laughs> not as good as I thought I was, but paper towel does a good job at letting me know. Uh, you compare that to like regular printer paper, 
I'll have a knife that will cut printer paper really well, and I'll go to the uh, phone book paper, and it'll snag in a few spots. So uh, the thinner the material, the more the more accurate of a reading it's going to give you as to what your edge is like. And so that pretty much wraps it up for the consumables. And I guess, I don't know, it might seem a little bit too simple. You know, the one thing I didn't write down as a list is PPE, but I can go through that right now real quick. Whenever I think about PPE, I always think about things that can heal themselves and grow back, you know, uh, like a, a lizard with its tail. That's the stuff that I obviously want to protect, but there are some things that, that you can't reverse damage, right? Your eyes, um, if you get something in your eyes, you're done. Uh, I generally have a rule that when I'm in my shop, my safety glasses are on. It doesn't matter if I'm hand sanding. It doesn't matter what I'm doing. I wear my glasses. It was easy for me because I grew up as a child with glasses on. I wear contacts now, but always, always, always have glasses. And the same thing with my kids, you know, when they're out there mowing the lawn or doing whatever, you know, you damage your eyes and it can be fairly irreversible. Another one along those lines is your lungs. You know, you get that crap in your lungs. Uh, I know there's a certain sense where your lungs kind of can repair themselves, but th there's a lot of damage that can be done that, that's not reversible. Uh, so anytime there's dust in the air, I've got a respirator on. Um, it's funny, you know, with everybody wearing face masks and stuff, I thought, oh, maybe I'll just wear my respirator out. Uh, but that is actually the opposite of what they want uh, with the face masks for us to protect each other, right? Because obviously that even a cloth face mask is to protect uh, the stuff coming out of you. Whereas with a respirator, it's designed to get that out quickly and it's only protecting what's coming in, right? You've got that one-way flap and you're filtering air in and it's just trying to free flow air going out with that check valve. So I thought about that. I thought, oh, maybe I'll just wear my respirator. And I thought, actually, you know what? That's I would probably get away with it and people would feel safe if I had one on, but it would be uh, not doing uh, what the intent of face masks is. But So uh, face mask, uh, respirator, something you should always wear if you're doing stuff like that, and chemicals too. The other thing to look into is the right filter for the right job. Now, typically, I'm just worried about particulate right? Like the wood dust, the metal dust. Um, but, and I don't work with enough chemicals that I think it really warrants it. But if you're doing a lot of painting or, you know, you're finishing with lacquer or, or stuff like that, uh, there are different filters that are actually good for, you know, like organic vapors and stuff like this. Uh, definitely look into it. And usually your supply houses, the, the industrial suppliers like Acklands Granger or something like that, uh, they'll have people that know and you can actually get the right, the right filter system for what you're doing. Um, gloves are good, uh, for some things, you know, I don't like grinding with gloves, uh, just cause I like to be able to feel with the steel. I, I just find I'm not as uh, precise when I have gloves on times when I will wear gloves are times like, um, a lot of times when I'm sharpening my knives, I've got cut resistant gloves. I've ended up like shanking myself real bad once cut right through my thumb and that was uh, sharpening a knife. Um, Drilling, stuff like that with rotating equipment, uh, generally it's probably more dangerous to be wearing gloves because uh, that's something your drill bit could catch um, and kind of suck you into the machine. Um, it's interesting. There's a whole whole thing. Like I was on a safety board once for a large company, and the big debate was whether or not guys should be wearing gloves on uh, grinders, like a bench grinder. And I believe the standard in Canada is you are not to wear gloves. And I know a lot of the, the welders hated it because it said, well, the stuff gets so hot. Uh, but the thing, again, is that, you know, that machine has so much power. 
and a, a loose finger of a glove somewhere could get caught, suck it in, and then it brings you with it, right? So I generally would say anytime you've got rotating equipment, you do not want to wear gloves. I think there's more damage there. I mean, yes, you could get a burn on your fingers or you maybe, you know, drill press, you could get a laceration from a, a, a drill, you know, a chip flying around or something like that. But again, I always look at the fact that, okay, you know, my skin can heal. If you get a cut, usually in a couple of days, it's healed over. Uh, but you break your, you, you know, break your finger, it gets sucked into a drill press or something like that. You can do a lot of damage. It's going to take a long time to fix and might not be entirely repaired. I got my finger caught in a milling machine once. And uh, my one knuckle on my one hand is about twice the size as my other hand. And that's never going to go away. That that damage, that I see that every day. Um, so that's just something to think about. And then other PPE, um, I, I don't know, I guess it's kind of, you know, you got your main things. Oh, hearing protection, obviously, number one. Um, with the different, like, hearing things, like isotunes and stuff like that, they're great. Keep in mind, isotunes, um, they're not, uh, people call them, like, a noise isolator, and, and they're not. They're just a blocker, right? But the beauty thing is that they do block it enough that you don't have to have your music super loud, and I even find when I have it as quiet as I can, there's no machines running, and then I jump on my grinder, I actually don't need to increase the volume because I can still hear it just fine. So either that or like earmuffs, I've got custom OLED hearing protection, which I really like. Uh, but that's another one of those things. Once you damage your hearing, it's over. You know, we're going through this right now with our kids. Uh, they're all wanting to get their own like wireless earbuds and stuff like that. And uh, we just reiterate to them, you know what, if you damage your hearing, that damage is forever. It can't get fixed. It doesn't go back. Uh, so those are the things. When I look at PPE and stuff, I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll I'll drill without gloves and I'll rub my hands over things. And yes, I'll get some cuts or something like that. But that all fixes itself. But you won't ever catch me doing anything without glasses on. Uh, you won't ever catch me doing anything that creates dust without a respirator on. Uh, and same thing with my hearing protection. Because that's all stuff that if it's damaged, it's damaged. It's stuck that way. Well, I think that kind of wraps up this list. Um... This is definitely the longest podcast I've ever done by myself. I wonder if anybody's actually still awake. Um, I was thinking I could put in some, like, sound effects or something. Um, uh, sorry if that was loud. Uh, what else do we got? <laughs> this is such a funny podcast. Um, yeah, no, this was uh, kind of interesting. And even looking at this now, uh, I think that's pretty much it. I, th I think I've literally just kind of explained to you uh, everything that I use to make knives. Yeah, if there is stuff, if there is stuff missing, I will uh, go through it in the uh, the website again. That'll be simple life, simplelittlelife.ca. Uh, you can find like episode fourteen notes or something like that, and uh, I'll put some more information in there. Some different links. Maybe I'll even try to find a couple of videos that I've done specific to this stuff, and just put a little bit more of a, a more substantial piece of a resource there for you. And then hopefully this was good to keep you company as you're working. Um, yeah, things have been going great for us. I hope they have for you too. And uh, School's kind of sort of getting a little bit back to normal. Uh, a few things uh, that, I've, that I've really been excited about in the shop is that I got my TIG welder all set up. And uh, I've been spending, most days I spend a half an hour a day welding, and it's definitely gotten a lot better. 
Uh, my steel welding steel is actually looking really, really good. Uh, the aluminum is coming very slowly, uh, but the the welds are actually strong. They just don't look good because I'll do like a butt joint and then I'll always destructive test it. And often it's actually ripping apart the aluminum that's not the weld. So that's kind of good. And maybe it's not. Maybe it's actually heating up the steel. I don't know for sure. Um, ultimately, if you do a destructive test, something's going to fail. Uh, it's just it's kind of nice to see it's not my weld that's kind of smearing apart. I have a recommendation, and this was something that's kind of interesting. It's It gave me a lot of thought. It's fairly popular right now. And there's a, a documentary on Netflix called The Social Dilemma. And so this is a, a basically a documentary, and they kind of interview some maybe past, I think some are even present employees at some of these social network places, Facebook, you know, Instagram, Pinterest, YouTube. Very interesting. And, and again, I mean... You do know certain things like this happen. I mean, I always see everything, and I, especially lately, I question everything I see. I'm like, okay, well, what's the angle? Because um, you really never know exactly what's what's coming at you here. But it's interesting to see the way that these social networks, um, they try and get you hooked, right? And it's true. I mean, their ultimate goal is to keep you staring at the screen. And it's kind of cool the way they, the different tactics they use. And originally how it had kind of started out as a... Not not anything sinister, right? I mean, it was cool. Facebook would allow you to connect with people in different parts of the world. And, um, you know, YouTube was a way you could share videos with each other. And then kind of how once it moves into a monetization setting, how sinister it can kind of turn. You know, interesting, the things that they'll do. Uh, and, and again, I don't know how true it is, but it kind of makes sense is that, you know, most people find their group, the people on their side, and, and everybody's just preaching to the choir, Right. So like I follow people on Instagram or Facebook, they're probably very, very similar to me. And then it's interesting because what what this thing kind of tells is that they will actually send you things that just kind of reinforce where you stand. Uh, same thing when you're looking on Facebook or, or, you know, you see these posts coming up on, on random. and It's kind of like, oh, this person is, you know, he sees this way. Let's just feed him more of this or and the same time you have the people on the other side of the fence. They're not getting the same feed as you are. So let's just say, uh, for instance, we're not picking any side here, but if we look at the uh, the gun debate, right? And if you're pro-gun, you're going to be having everything in your feed about how pro-gun and this person's pro-gun and a good movement for the pro-guns and this person's trying to ban guns. But if you're anti-gun, your feed is going to look very different and it's going to be kind of tailored to the fact that, well, yes, guns are bad and good. You got to vote for this guy because he's going to get rid of guns, blah, blah, blah. And it's interesting that these people in this documentary say that, you know what, they basically feed you what you want to hear. And they'll feed the other side, people that maybe not, they don't agree with you. They'll feed them what they want to hear. And it kind of makes sense. Like they're saying that way they can create such incredible divide and such incredible polarization and it's true, and I wonder how much of that is actually going on, right? Uh, you look at, at things going on right now, whether, you know, pro-mask, anti-mask, you know, <laughs> we're, we're so strong about it. And depending on which side you are, chances are you're only getting stuff that kind of feeds into your side. And so it's kind of interesting, interesting to think about. And what it's actually made me do is uh, we used to do this a little bit a couple years ago, maybe a year ago, and then we stopped, but we actually have what we call a screen-free Sunday, with the exception of our uh, family movie, or sometimes we'll watch church online. But we have uh, 
every Sunday night we get together as a family and we watch a movie and it's it's fun. It's a great tradition and it's cool because we can kind of watch some of the old classics from when we were kids. Uh, my wife and I when we were kids and, and let the kids enjoy those. Um, but yesterday I didn't even turn my phone on. Not once. I didn't look at a screen. Um, we were doing some running around the city. Kind of weird not to have my phone with me. And I actually bought some magazines of, of interests that I'm into because I thought, you know, this is kind of neat. And it was amazing how how freeing it was that my phone was turned off. Nobody could call me. Nobody could get a hold of me. I didn't check Instagram. I, I didn't look at YouTube comments. I didn't do anything. And it was so nice. And again, there's there's times like on a Sundays, they're pretty relaxed days for our family. And I just wanted to chill out, but I'm, I've got my interest. I want to read about bikes. So I had a bike magazine and I just thumbed through the pictures and you still get that stimulation, right? I still get to look at pictures of bicycles, but it was so cool because I started on bicycles and I ended with bicycles. Now, usually if I'm on Instagram, I'm looking at bike posts and then I'll see some other hashtag. I'm like, Hey, what's that? And then I go down these rabbit trails. And next thing you know, you know, I spent 45 minutes looking at something that I wasn't intending to look at. And, uh, it was a lot of fun, but it also reminded me of the days when I used to be a bicycle blogger. Um, I had a bike blog. It was called, it's still there, actually. You can go look at old body of my work. It's jeromes-bikes-blogspot.com. And that was kind of like in the early days of the internet, I thought it'd be bad to use my real name. And uh, so yeah, jeromes, J-E-R-O-M-E-S-bikes.blogspot.com. And it was really cool because I remember when Google had a service called Google Reader, and you could find all these bike blogs that you liked and you could take the RSS feed from it, plop it into your Google Reader. And then when you want to catch up with things, you know, you open up Google Reader and all the posts from all the people that you want to follow show up. And I remember when Google took that away and I thought that was so weird. Um, there was another one that I switched to that's called Feedly. And I think the reason, you know, after watching this show, The Social Dilemma, I think one of the reasons that Google got away from that might have been because of the fact that... Um, it was so user controlled. So basically like there weren't ads on there and I understand uh, these things cost money. Um, but so if I control every single feed in there, then I have complete control of what I take in. And I think that's great. And then the other thing too, is that, you know, when somebody writes back in the day, it was a little bit more honest sharing. Um, Hey, this is, you know, uh, uh, an accessory I added to my bike, or this was a bike trip I went on, or I got this new bike. And it, nobody was really doing it to try and have the most popular bike block. Um, I was actually surprised a few times. We'd have like, you know, the stats counter so you could see how many people were there. And I actually ended up getting a sponsorship on my blog once this company sent me some, a few sponsorships actually, like SIG water bottles sent me some water bottles. Uh, that was because I put a bad post about their products and so they wanted to send me a whole bunch more so I could feel better about their products. And then there's a company that made like hand, it was like handmade wool cycling jerseys, uh, sent me one. And I was, I was shocked because I was like, I'm just blogging. I'm just typing up these blog posts and people are actually reading it. And it was so fun because when I went to read my favorite bloggers posts, it was exactly what they wanted, right? And and I, what I wanted to see was what they were sharing. And it was so much more uh, user controlled. Uh, whereas now the way that you know, Instagram, Instagram is probably my primary social uh, networking. I don't use Facebook. I hate Facebook because the way that they allow content to be stealed from YouTube, put on Facebook and to try and get, if I have a knife making video on YouTube and somebody just literally downloads it, puts it onto their Facebook page, it will take me weeks to get it down and I have to fill out legal forms. And it's like, dude, 
look at this. This is mine. He stole it. It's just they're they're pretty. I, I don't like Facebook at all. I hate Facebook. Um, and obviously Instagram is owned by Facebook. So now what, what's that about? Who knows? But um, you know, I, you always hear people talking about how they'll change the algorithm, and then you know there'll be somebody you follow on Instagram. And after a couple months, it's like, wait a minute, that guy just dropped off the earth? And no, they've been they've been posting all the time, but for some reason, the the algorithm isn't showing their stuff to you now. They'll they'll change it, right? Instead of uh, like a timeline based thing, so that the newest feeds or show up, you know, the most recent feeds show up first, and so on. And it's funny because all these platforms, it's amazing when you think about it. The user itself has lost a lot of control, and so. I think too. That's that's kind of why maybe Google dropped the Google Reader, and um, it's actually made me start to want to do my own blog again. Now, I really enjoy writing, and I enjoy sharing with images. And the other thing too is that it seems, um, you know, the attention span of today's social media is so much less. I used to be able to write a blog post, and it could have one, maybe two images in it. Uh, but if it was a reputable blogger or somebody you liked, you would read through like the three or four paragraphs that they wrote about because it was interesting to you and your attention could sit still long enough to get through all that they've shared. Uh, whereas now, I mean, everything's just an image and then a description, maybe some hashtags. And it's like, ah, and you know, a couple of swipes of the thumb and you can you can go through 50 different uh, pieces of output from different people where the blogging was a little bit more, it took more to put onto a blog. You had to actually write stuff and, and it wasn't such a little blip, blip, little snippet here and there. And it was an interesting shift. I mean, it's funny because so many people that I followed on the bicycle blog world, I found them all on Instagram. And I don't think any of us are doing bike blogs anymore. But watching that whole social, um, uh, this recommendation, the social dilemma, I'm actually going to start a personal blog again. And uh, I've got to actually get a new domain. Well, it's jeremygertz.com. I have that website, but I'm actually going to move it to a different provider and uh, set up a better way. And so I want to start sharing more stuff there you know like actually write a piece about something that's happened and and it's like you know what i understand that it's not going to be um only a small handful of people are actually going to care but i kind of like that interaction better it's a little bit deeper it's a little bit more real and you know it's funny i i, I put a few things that were mildly political on instagram obviously i got my beliefs and i do think that was a dumb thing to do but it's amazing what has happened to my feed uh, since then. And I've looked at the, the trends. I mean, I always looked at, you know, whatever. Like like my Instagram the last um, probably two months hasn't grown at all. Like not at all. And it's it's amazing. I'll get like 35 new followers and 35 unfollowers. And, it's, and it happened. It was a significant halt when I put in something about what I thought was going on in the world right now. Uh, I got like instant, like three of my posts were instantly taken down like within nine seconds of me posting them. And then Instagram sent me something saying, oh, bad boy, you can't say anything like this and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, wow, you know, everything's so monitored. Uh, there is no freedom of speech anymore. And especially with these larger platforms, when I see that happen, and it wasn't anything offensive, it wasn't any hate speech. It was just, listen, I think this is exactly what's going on. We need to open up our eyes. Boom, they took it down. And it's kind of crazy. It's like, wow, you really don't want this message out there, do you? Uh, whereas if I have my own blog that's hosted on a website that I own, I mean, I pay for it, my hosting, I can say whatever I want. It's not like I'm out here going like, hey, <laughs> I've got some radical ideas I want to share. Not at all. I just like the idea that it's not censored. And uh, I think with these other things like the, the social media that we all use now, 
I think if you look at how little control you have over it, it's kind of terrifying. It's kind of like, wow. So that was a long ramble about my recommendation. Um, if anything, it makes you think, right? And, and again, I'm not saying, oh, this is a fact of the matter. These social media companies are evil. I, I don't know that. I'm not in the industry, you know, but it, it's definitely something that kind of opens your mind. Is like, hey, let me think about that a little bit, you know? Um I definitely think that people, like, like as a culture and a society, we use our devices way too bloody much. Um, I'm going to try posting less uh, to Instagram because there's a certain sense where, you know, I feel like maybe it's just a distraction and not much more. You know, if, if it's something that I'm actually showing you uh, something you can learn from, well, that's different, right? That's adding your value, uh, like informing as opposed to me forming, right? Just like, this is what I'm doing. This is for me. And so I'm, I'm going to start tightening up my social media feeds. Um, if it, if they're accounts that I'm actually learning from, great. Or if it's a person I genuinely want to connect with and I want to see what they're doing, that's different too, right? But uh, it's it's interesting. It's kind of an interesting thing. Anyways, I recommend strongly The Social Dilemma. Worth checking out and... Uh, Love to hear what your thoughts are on it. If you haven't heard that recommendation already, it's very popular right now. It's probably one of their more more popular shows on Netflix uh, for good reason. I, I kind of get excited when I see stuff like that. At least people are thinking about it, right? I'm not saying that this is the end-all be-all, but think about it. You know, think about the way you, you use your devices. Anyways, I think that's going to wrap up this here podcast. I think we're at like an hour and a half of me talking by myself to a microphone under my stairs. <laughs> if you've stuck around this long, I really do appreciate it. Uh, I had a lot of fun. I actually really enjoyed this one. And maybe it's something to actually being a little bit prepared. I look at my list right here and I'm like, ah, I actually talked about this stuff. I had a game plan going into it. Anyways, I want to say thank you so much for listening. And uh, the regular spiel, uh, if you want to give a review, that helps out a lot. Uh, do it follow your favorite podcasts. And if you like this show, uh, like the outro, this is going to say, check out the other shows made for makers just like you. No, a lot of great podcasts, um, really interesting, um, very diverse podcasts. So uh, check out the Makery Network. And I wish you guys all the best. I hope things go fantastic in your shop this week. Hopefully you, you know, you, you cross off a milestone, something you've wanted to do, and you finish it. And it's like, yes, I knew I could get that done. I knew I could actually actually meet that skill level. I hope that goes well for you this week. And uh, thanks for listening. We will catch you on the next episode. Cheers. If you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network.